0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the impact of rising inflation and oil prices on the market, as well as how the dominance of China and tech giants affects competition and innovation, with Maya Welford, behavioural finance expert, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome back to another episode of Word on the Street. We've already had one episode so far this week, keeping Raul and the production team very, very busy. If you're interested in hearing from a Banks expert from outside of Barclays, do definitely have a listen. It's always good to get different perspectives and voices on the podcast. Anyway, for today's conversation, we're having a usual voice back. We're going to cover the rest of the news and some other bits and pieces with Will. Will, hello. What's the latest?
1: Hello, Maya. Hello, everyone. And sorry, Raoul and production team. I hope you're all living the dream. I think, Maya, to your question, uh, the main story of this week has been really a bit of a reminder that the inflationary threat is not done with quite yet. So some aspects of the US inflation story, you know, broken up, and you can chop this data up all sorts of ways, as we know, super gore core, and take out all the little bits. But they're going the wrong way a little bit. Nonetheless, markets seem to have taken it in their stride or these data points in their stride more or less so far without sort of, you know, getting too touchy, which is good news. But remember, you know, this is a lot of the focus at the moment is going to continue to be, amongst investors anyway, is going to continue to be that search for the peak in interest rates. The moment when the central banks feel that they've done enough raising the policy rates to feel satisfied that the inflationary threat is behind us. Now, there are thoughts that we're close to that peak some are suspecting that you know the ECB has done its the European Central Bank has done its last rate hike today i think that's 10 consecutive rate hikes the uk we're not quite sure there's sort of conflicting language coming from policy members and some of the data like in the us is pointing in the wrong direction but again there's a sense that we're close to the peak and then it's really just a matter of how long does it stay do they these interest rates stay at this peak and when do they to what normal do they return
0: and it feels like we may be seeing the back of this inflationary hump, given where the lead indicators for inflation seem to be pointing. Is that a bit premature for me to assume, though? And I know, you know, recently oil prices have been rising quite sharply.
1: Yes, we don't want to tempt fate, do we? I think that's no. important. <laughs> never, never. But no, I, th- I hope you're right, Maya. You know, certainly, like you say, a lot of the lead indicators, to the extent they can be trusted, have been heading in the right direction. But you're right also on oil prices. They're going the wrong way a bit. So, you know, the OPEC cartel plus Russia have a bit more than normal pricing power in some people's, at the moment, in some people's um, estimation. And countries like Saudi Arabia have, we talked about this before, uh, domestic spending programs to fund, which require oil prices at a certain level, perhaps. And actually, you know, gasoline prices in the US data was so certainly one of the, those sort of nasty surprises to a certain degree. But above a certain level of oil prices, you would expect quite a powerful non-OPEC supply response. So, you know, shale oil producers in the US and so on who have, you know, it takes cost them more to get it out of the ground. So they need a higher price to get interested in activity. But so, I think the safest thing to say at the moment is that we remain in a pretty precarious moment. But There is cause for optimism on the broad direction of inflationary pressures that the worst of it is behind us. Let's hope so anyway.
0: Yeah, definitely. Let's hope so. So you shared an article you wrote on LinkedIn yesterday. I read it on my commute into the office this morning. And something which caught my eye was this antitrust case in the US against Alphabet. So Alphabet's the parent company of Google. So essentially, the federal government is taking on the world's search engine. What's all this about, Will?
1: Yes, it's interesting. You are very diligent. I, uh, yeah, I need <laughs> much less, much less worky stuff on my way, way into work. <laughs> but, uh, yes, it's, it, it's interesting. I think Maya, I mean, I think you know, for many years, and I'm oversimplifying a bit, but anti-competitive behavior was seen through the prism of the effect of a particular company on prices within the area that that company could affect. However, there seems to be a bit of a sort of gathering acknowledgement at the moment, uh, and maybe this has been happening for a little bit, that there are you know other ways that dominant companies could affect or negatively affect consumers. And so we're seeing that crystallize a little bit. We'll we'll see whether it sort of comes to anything, but that's just one of the sort of threads to pay a bit of attention to here, I think.
0: That makes sense. And surely the main threat of a company that grabs all of a market, a so-called monopolist, is that there's no competition to keep us honest on prices.
1: Yes. And I think that's part of it. Uh, and I'm going to avoid saying monopolist. Because <laughs> you just said it. has <laughs> said it. I'm going to try and avoid saying monopolist <laughs> or monopoly, but it's, uh, they're very uh, hard words to say, but it, it, it's, yes. I mean, uh, the situation of the last few decades is interesting in a way because you've seen, you know, it, certain companies have assembled kind of enormous market power. Monopolies to a degree. And this has been sort of waved through by various competition authorities because a lot of these companies, these titans, are selling stuff for free, or at least selling stuff that seems to be free to consumers. And, you know, certainly not raising prices anyway. But however, the effect of this gathering market power in sort of a few companies' hands has perhaps had a deadening effect on, you know, wider productivity in the economy, which remember is bad for everyone because less productivity means less living standard growth. That means, you know, less of that free lunch um, that comes with with innovation across the entire economy. So it, it's worth paying attention to or at least examining in a bit more detail.
0: And can you explain a bit more about kind of how that works and the actual impacts that it has on productivity?
1: Yes, you, you're asking for it now. Honestly, I'll try and be brief, but I don't, you know, I don't want to get too boring on this. You know, fam- I know there's familiar words from me, but before I go on a, a really long diatribe about productivity, but I, I think. You know, the very, very basic idea is that in order to incentivize, you know, companies to invest in all important research and development and other growth and productivity essentials, you essentially need the reward of monopoly profits, you know, extra juicy returns that, you know, if you get it all right and actually excel to have, you know, at the end of a, that, at the end of a rainbow, let's say. I uh, know that's not a great analogy, but you know what I mean? However, if monopoly profits get too juicy, the gap between winners and the rest becomes too large in a sense. So, and actually it becomes a disincentive to the others. So the, the gap becomes so large that you end up discouraging the rest from investing in R&D because it almost becomes pointless. It's just not worth it. The businesses become fatalistic to a degree. It's a balance and it's a very difficult one to strike. Uh, very difficult to observe and very difficult to strike. And I guess that's the moment we're in.
0: Yeah, definitely. It can definitely go too far for sure. So back to this case with Alphabet, it could be pretty informative about other potential monopolists. So what about China? You make the link in your article to a story about huge increase in the supply of cars coming from China. And Europe was in the news in particular as worrying about the effects of this. What are your thoughts, Will?
1: Yes, I mean my right. I mean this is the idea that, uh, and it's sort of tangentially related to, to alphabets. Obviously, you know, I'm not yeah. comparing alphabet to China too much. That's, uh, but you know, I, I think it's the same kind of theory, which is about healthy competition, and it's mostly a positive force in economics. It keeps you know companies and actors honest for the most part, as you pointed out, but. But how do we define healthy and how do we keep it there? And what is an even playing field? You know, this is where things like subsidies, domestic subsidies to certain industries become so challenging. Because how do other car manufacturers in other countries compete with something in a certain country that has giant state support and so on? So, you know, it's what does fair competition look like? Now, unfettered global trade is... In theory, positive sum. And what I mean by that is it generates free lunches because of the, you know, efficiencies it creates, mainly because what you're doing is you're allowing the economy to, the global economy to organize itself by something called comparative advantage. So goes the theory anyway. And that means that you just get more efficiency. And so therefore, that should mean better prices for all and that kind of thing. But, you know, look at the rust belts in the developed world. You know, there's manufacturing areas that have just been decimated by competition from emerging markets coming coming forward. You know, that's, that's one side of it. And there's, in America, for instance, there's now acknowledged to be considerable overlap in the map. Spatial analyses have shown that, you know, where you've lost a lot of those manufacturing jobs, that's also where this kind of opioid plague in the U.S., has also kind of taken hold so there's correlation there so the point is that yes you know the last several decades will be remarked upon by future historians as a period of great poverty reduction at the global level you know china in particular has been enormously successful at reducing levels of extreme poverty and that is a great story let's not you know make any bones about it but there have also been parts of society in the developed world which have you know, not just relatively lost, but absolutely lost in a way. And look at you know the life expectancy charts of white non-Hispanic Americans of lower education brackets in particular. But you can see it in the overall U.S. life expectation chart that you know this is not not an easy story in many ways. So that to me that starts to help explain why some of the U.S. policymakers and developed world policymakers are thinking a little bit less in terms of you know free trade and they're thinking more about how can we do a bit of both, which is difficult trick to pull off, but you know, how can we support certain domestic industries and make sure that things that we're very interested in for our military industrial complex are not just coming from one country, which is you know, under threat of invasion by China. You know, so how, do you, how can you create that stability and diversification and have some of the gains from free trade? And I think that's it's an era of experimentation on that front.
0: There's a graph in your article which you've just alluded to around the kind of life expectancy and this really shows the stark difference between the US and the other developed countries. I found that really, really eye-opening.
1: Shocking, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, really, really shocking. And you mentioned that the opioid crisis there as well. So I guess from a global perspective, the story of the last few decades is that unprecedented reduction in extreme poverty, but the story is obviously a lot more complicated, as you've mentioned, when you start drilling into these regions. But if we take it back to an investment standpoint, how do we put all of this together? Do we disinvest in tech titans? Do we assume further huge deflation from China? What's the action here, Will?
1: No, definitely not, I think, Maya. I mean, I think, remember, you know, and this is, it sounds mealy-mouthed, I guess, but I think, remember, there are loads of futures ahead, where the tech titans that we've come to know so well, you know, at the top of these indices around the world, that they set the agenda for the next decade, as well as the last. And, you know, there's a continuation of what they've done. So it's it's wise to hold some exposure to these companies. They've, you know, they've, to a certain degree, they've earned their monopoly profits. The question is, uh, you know, to what degree do we want to soften those edges in order to spread some of those gains? And I think that's up to the regulators. But You've got to, and I think the point is, you've got to always force yourself to imagine all sorts of other worlds where... Like I say, antitrust turns a bit more unfriendly to these technology companies where the Chinese economy does implode under the weight of its kind of property bubble and gathering sort of problems on that. And you've got to try and incorporate that into your investment thinking at all times. And that's why, you know, we're so proud of our strategic asset allocation process, which is very much all about that idea where you're trying to invest this right. is not just strategic you know, asset allocation, it's it's the manager selection story as well. You know, it's just how we design our philosophical kind of foundations of how we build funds and portfolios. It's all about trying to imagine multiple different futures, and many of those futures will not extend in a straight line. From the recent past. They'll imagine kinks in history, kinks in the future, which, you know, where the where things go in a totally different direction. And I think that is really important to always imagine. And, and and the end result is that you diversify beyond, you know, a batch of recent winners. You, you know, you think more broadly than that. So yeah, don't, don't, don't disinvest in that way. I think just invest more broadly. And the, the more broadly you design your investment net, the more likely you are to catch the gains from the incoming sort of technological revolution, industrial revolution, if that's what we're living through. And I think that's the most important thing in investing.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a really good note to finish on, Well, Thank you for the constant reminder about the cruciality of diversification. Thanks for joining us. And that's it for another episode of Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.